This is the Changemaker Forum Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode number seven of the Changemaker Forum Podcast. My name is Jeremy Brown, founder of Startups Give Back and your host for this episode. I'm joined today by Daniel Weens, the president of an organization called Journeyman International. Daniel and his team are doing remarkable work that's having a major impact on some of the most poverty-stricken areas in the world. In this episode, Daniel and I will chat about how Journeyman International got its start, sustainable design and how it fights poverty, and a lot more. So, buckle up. This is a great episode. Daniel, welcome to the show. Jeremy, it's good to be here. Thank you for joining me. Uh, so, you know, before we get into Journeyman International, what I would like to do is to go back in time before you founded the organization and talk a little bit about who you are and what got you to the point of starting the organization. So can you give me an, a quick summary of, of your background and how you got to the point of starting Journeyman International? Sure, I'd love to. So, um, again, my name is Daniel Weens, founder of Journeyman International. I grew up in Central Oregon, and just had a passion for building things. Um, thought I wanted to be an engineer, um, but realized I'd, I'd rather be outside swinging a hammer than sitting in front of a computer, which led me to a construction management degree at California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo, also known as Cal Poly. And uh, just it was a perfect fit, um, just the right sector for me. And through a series of events, um, my senior year stumbled upon the concept that eventually became um, Journeyman International. And what was that concept? Well, so at Cal Poly, students um, are required to do a thesis, dissertation, you know, senior project, um, where you basically get a year to dedicate to whatever you want. It has to get approved by your professor, uh, but then you get to choose what you're going to dedicate a year's worth of time to. And at this particular stage in my life, I was ready to be done with school, ready to go out in the industry, make money, and actually build stuff. Um, so I, for my senior project, I took on a pretty daunting project, which ended up revolutionizing and changing my life and my career path. Um, so I'll tell you about that real quick. There was an organization in down in Central America in the country of Belize that had a desire to build a dental clinic. And they had land and funding and dentists, but the project was stalled because they were intimidated by um, the design, engineering, and construction aspects of the project. So I took that on for my thesis, moved down there for three months uh, to help build the clinic which was such an eye-opening experience. Um, it ended up taking me on a journey that now is, has been 10 years in the making, um, which is Journeyman International. I'm fascinated by that. So I, I watched one of your presentations and you talked about sustainable design. But before we get into that, uh, let's talk about Journeyman International itself and what it is. Sure. So you know, Journeyman has, has morphed over the last 10 years, as most businesses do. You, you start out with a concept, and then as time goes on, you, you kind of figure out how to perfect it. And um, I, I believe strongly that 
humanitarian organizations need to have a specific niche, a specific skill set that they bring to the table. I think a lot of organizations are very vague. They try to do too much. Um, what Journeyman International is, in a nutshell, is a platform that connects humanitarian infrastructure needs with volunteers in the industry. Um, the, the reality is there is a tremendous amount of humanitarian organizations around the world. And there's also a tremendous amount of young professionals, university students, and professionals that would love to volunteer their time, energy, talent towards these projects, but, but there's not a lot of organizations that kind of coordinate, connect those dots, and have kind of the in-the-field expertise to know how to navigate working in the developing world because it's a, it's a very different ball, ball field um, designing and engineering in third world countries than it is, say, here in the United States. So, again, in a nutshell, we're, the way I describe it is we're a platform. Uh, we take all these puzzle pieces and we put them together and we send people down a pipeline that allows them to succeed and really, really bless these organizations with their needs. So the average Joe or Jane, uh, at least in the United States, uh, doesn't have an opportunity to travel to places like Belize. So I want to live vicariously through you. Uh, could you <laughs> share a little bit about that experience and, and, and kind of how that shaped you? I am such a firm believer in, in getting outside of what I call the American bubble. Um, I think that gaining perspective is one of the best things you can do for yourself. And I'm a totally different person now than before I was able to be exposed um, to, to the rest of the world. The reality is our lifestyle here in America, we're the outlier. Um, you know, we think that the developing world is the outlier, but the developing world is the majority of the world. And um, we're so remarkably blessed here, but until you, end up, you have that perspective to appreciate it, um, you know, it, 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 it's kind of null and void. So I just encourage everybody, find an opportunity to get outside of your bubble, get outside of your box, um, and, and go experience new cultures. Um, you know, look at how your, the, industry, the specific industry that you're in operates in those developing countries um, and find ways that you can plug in and support. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's been quite an, an adventure, Jeremy. I bet. Uh, was there anything in particular that really, when you first got there, really stuck with you? Was there an experience or maybe something that you saw that you just you were kind of taken aback? Yeah, I would say a couple things stand out. One, I, I believe strongly in the uh, saying, the older you get, the less you know. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people go into, you know, this sort of an industry thinking, I'm going to solve the world's problems. And the reality is it's a very, very complex um, industry. And if something works on paper, it doesn't mean it works in the field. I give a university lecture on all of the brilliant humanitarian innovations that people have developed that fail miserably in the field. And they sound great on paper, but I believe so strongly that you have to get into the situation and, and become a student um, before you can really understand how you can plug in and have an impact. One particular uh, story that really shaped my life was when I was actually down in Belize, and this was 11, 10 or 11 years ago, um, I was hiring a, a local Mayan family um, on the construction project, 
And this family lived in a village in the jungle and was able to thrive without, for the most part, any income. There were many people in this village that had never once collected a paycheck. And they were happy and they were healthy and they had medicine. And, you know, I had never thought that it was possible to survive. You know, like we think if if you're not making at least $40,000 a year, you're going to you're going to die, right? But, but human beings have the ability to thrive, um, you know, w- without having a source of income. And that just, that was shocking for me. What are some of the lessons you've learned uh, building Journeyman International? Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of lessons learned. Um, and like I said before, it's a complex industry. Um, it's um, and, and the other thing is every country is so different. You know, so you, you work in a country and you, you feel like you're starting to figure out the culture, the building materials, the permitting and coding requirements. And then you go to a, the next country across the border and it's completely different. Um, the biggest thing that we've learned is in order to succeed in this industry, you have to really, really, you have to take your expertise with you, but you have to be willing to start from scratch as far as, like I mentioned, becoming a student. Um, just spend time listening before you speak. Spend time there. Um, get to know, get to know the locals. Get to, you know, understand what your building material options are. Um, understand what their desires are. Take a look at kind of the engineering methods that are utilized. You know, and you compare those to the engineering methods that that we utilize. And and you can't just force our methods on them, but sometimes there needs to be a compromise. Um, I think compromise has been a big lesson learned is figuring out how they do things in these countries and ways that we can kind of integrate with them, work with them um, to provide them the product that is, that is truly desired. Is it safe to say that there is no, when it comes to construction, there is no kind of turnkey way of building a building in different regions. It's you have to, you have to go into the region itself, find out what materials they have on hand, find out the most efficient way of a building the building. And once it is built, making sure that it's efficiently ran, uh, is it safe to say that one size does not fit all? Oh, definitely. Okay. You know, we, we've done projects in, in war torn areas of Sudan where, you know, you have your primary building material is mud right and and the budget is super low and so you know it's a kind of a unique puzzle you got to go in and figure out what your options are and and how to work with it um you know or and then we've worked in other areas where um you know it's almost uh like building in a in a first world country where you have the building materials and engineering methods that sh- that you're used to so yeah each uh each project is its own animal that you just have to really study and become a student of how do you deal with those puzzles? I, I, I can imagine that that can be difficult uh, to to fit the pieces of the puzzle together. What have you learned from that experience in terms of, of how to go into a region and do your business and make sure that the end product is high quality? Right. Well, and that's perhaps the, the most fun part. Um, and, and again, the most important thing is you just got to go. Um, you got to go, you got to spend time there. And, um, you know, we think it's very, very important not to take over roles of other individuals, um, 
in, in said country that have the expertise and know how to do it instead of us. So you got to go figure out what, where specifically can we plug in to help and where do we need to allow others to kind of take the reins. The reality is there are, you know, each country you go to may have the caliber of architecture and engineering support that's necessary. And if that's the case, you know, we're not needed. Some places there, you know, there may be a qualified engineer, but um, the the caliber of design is not necessarily appreciated um, in a lot of countries. In fact, architecture is one of the newest industries in the world. We, you know, we think of it as kind of a mainstream industry, but the appreciation for quality design um, you don't find everywhere. Um, so again, we we think it's really really important to figure out, okay. Who do we have on the ground that can adequately um, spearhead this project? And what are kind of the pieces that they're lacking that we can plug in and support and make a team effort instead of it just being this group from the Western world coming in and, and doing it all. Right. Um, so. so on that wavelength, so if you go into a new region that you haven't been before, how do you find those people that can help you on that project? Yeah, you just uh, get your boots on the ground and, and start asking, you know, so, so the way Journeyman operates is we partner with these humanitarian organizations and we're pretty, um, we're pretty specific with the types of organizations that we partner with. So oftentimes they will have offices in the region, boots on the ground, and we'll have some contacts. If they don't, you know, we just, we just start tracking them down. We just start making phone calls um, and, uh, and just start meeting people meeting with the local government officials, um, you know, ascertaining what the building code requirements are. And the reality is a lot of the world that there's few or no building code requirements. Um, but uh, yeah, it's important. It's really, really important to have um, a local team that's on board, that's invested. Um, you know, we only hire local construction teams on our projects. We don't send construction teams over. Um, we would rather employ those people. Um, you know, they they want the job, and, and they honestly are, are better working with the, the local materials than we would ever be anyways. Uh, if you don't have a good cohesive team uh, that we're supporting that's on the ground, uh, the projects rarely succeed. Yeah, I like the fact that you hire locally because you're not only are you giving people an opportunity uh, to work, but you're empowering them in their community. That's smart. Right. So one concept that uh, I, I'm excited about, and you know, I've heard you talk about it, is a sustainable design. And in one of your presentations, I was watching one of your videos, uh, you mentioned sustainable design methods are the greatest weapon we have to fight global poverty. So two-part question. Um, can you define what sustainable design is? And then a second part of that question is, how does it help fight global poverty? Yeah, great question. It's a topic that I'm, I'm very, very passionate about um, in ways that are different than most people think. Uh, you know, sustainable design is this big buzzword these days. And it's this, you know, some say it's the fastest growing industry. Um, and the reality is it's, it's, it's somewhat of a band-aid to a, to a problem that we created, right? Sustainable design is nothing new. Uh, sustainable design is us trying to fix 
the problem that we created, which was, you know, being incredibly inefficient with our structures. Um, most people, when they hear sustainable design, they think sustainable design, they're thinking about the environment. We've got to save the environment. We've got to slow down global warming. From my perspective, I look at it differently. I see sustainable design as one of, if not the greatest, poverty-fighting tool that we have available. And my evidence for that is when we go into these countries and we get to know, say, uh, villagers in a, in a rural village in Africa, we look at their income and, and their expenses. And the reality is the way the world has shifted, they're spending a majority, sometimes a vast majority of their income on utility expenses that, you know, pre-colonial era they didn't have, but now in, in the way the world has turned, they have, and it's absolutely milking their uh, income dry. So helping them kind of go back to the original roots of, of true sustainable design, and by that I mean natural ventilation and daylighting and building orientation and using thermal mass in your structures and, um, you know, just simple um, traditional building methods allows them to vastly reduce, you know, some of their electrical consumption. Um, so if they can do that and, and, and have a huge savings in their income, then suddenly they're able to start a business, send their kids to school, buy building materials, uh, et cetera. Right. And you were, you were saying, what, 60% of the income they make goes towards their utilities like electricity. And it, it's in some cases, it's 100% of their income, correct? Yeah, you know, based upon the surveys that we've done, that's pretty consistent. Um, you know, like the village I was telling you about in Belize, you know, they were different. Uh, they because they didn't have any income, and so they they were living and, and building vastly more sustainably than anywhere I've ever seen. And it was because they needed to. It's because they didn't have any other choice. Um, you know, we have created this problem, and now now we're we're using this catchphrase of sustainable design to try to kind of cover up our mistakes. Um, but, you know, when, we, when I go throughout Africa, I see villages where, um, you know, a, a rural village that was designed in the traditional methods and then some of the housing that they're living in now that, you know, is almost like planted in cornrows out in the sun with tin roofs that basically turn into little microwaves. And um, and so those are the families that are now really having to invest a lot of their income into their utility expenses. So with what you know now and your work with uh, JI, how do we improve that? How do we make improvements in terms of sustainable design to ensure that regions are running efficiently and aren't, you know, kind of in those those uh, microwaves, so to speak? Right, right. Well, and again, in a lot of these places, they have a better grasp and understanding of it than we do. Um, but but um, I love taking our team and going in and doing, you know, kind of mini educational um, presentations on the very fundamentals of sustainable design, the very, very free, simple, easy methods when you're constructing, say, a new house or a, a new orphanage or what what is it um, that can um, 
you know, vastly improve the quality, the environment, the comfort, um, reduce utility costs. And again, it's a lot of just those fundamental things like utilizing thermal mass, um, how you orientate your building, capitalizing on natural daylight and ventilation, um, and uh, just just kind of reinforcing old methods um, that are just so valuable. So one question that I like to ask social entrepreneurs um, is this, as it relates to what you've learned um, in your 10 years running JI um, and the things you're doing now, what is one problem in the world that you believe is worth solving and why? Oh, great question. I could probably come up with a bunch of answers. Um, I think, again, I, I think each social entrepreneur needs to find a specific niche. You know, for us, it's been kind of filling that expertise void that we discovered that was there with all of these humanitarian organizations that at some point along the line are wanting to build something, a school, an orphanage, a hospital, you name it. And for us to kind of squeeze into that specific niche, I, I see that as a huge need. And the reality is there's not a lot of organizations like JI. There's a small handful, um, but there's a huge need for it. Um, and I think a big part of it is the appreciation for quality design. I think, I think most people or a lot of people don't recognize the value, the true value of a quality design building, um, versus one that's just a rectangle with rooms, um, especially when it comes to a lot of the, um, individuals that we're trying to bless people who have had they you know been dealt a very very rough hand uh, orphans sex trafficking victims um, there's a huge difference between say an orphanage that is a boring environment versus one that's fun and exciting and lively and it really changes uh, how these children can develop um, so I'm a big proponent of, of going in and in kind of producing a showcase of how you can uh, really make a space special and how that can really have an impact. You look at how, you know, hospitals are designed and the reason that rooms are white and there's science behind um, how it affects your mood. Um, your environment has a huge, huge impact on your health. Do you have any, any examples? Uh, it could be in the United States or overseas uh, of structures that are well designed um well i would go back to the orphanage example um just because it's a project that's dear to my heart there was a organization we partnered with in guadalajara mexico um, that was working in an existing orphanage and it was a pretty rough environment and um, they raised funds and we helped them design a new orphanage complex um, where they ended up moving the kids over and you could just see instantly the change that it had for these young people. Um, they suddenly, I mean, orphans have been dealt a really rough hand as it is and, and they lack a lot of personal pride and the new space that we were able to produce for them suddenly gave them something to be proud of, something to be excited about. So, you know, they, after school, they were inviting their friends over to the orphanage to hang out. They suddenly, um, you know, had something to be proud of. In fact, I even heard that they held 
I think the prom after party at the orphanage, which would have never happened at the facility that they were in before. Um, so, you know, that's, that's just one example of how you can really, really change someone's um, sense of pride and sense of worth by giving them an environment that they can really uh, flourish in. That's amazing. For JI, is it only in Cal Poly in terms of students being able to take part in projects or are you in different uh, universities around the United States? We've worked with probably 15 universities at this point. We're really excited about um, some of our university expansions in Africa, uh, getting African students working on projects in Africa. Uh, you know, we don't just work in Africa, but uh, I would say probably half of our projects are there. You know, we've done a lot with Cal Poly over the years and we will continue to do so, but no, we provide opportunities for, for students all over the place. Um, so, so Journeyman Platform really connects design volunteers from three categories. One is our thesis program, which you're alluding to here, which is university architecture, engineering, and construction students that have a thesis opportunity that allows them to work on a real project. Um, the second demographic of designers is what we call emerging professionals, which is typically folks in their late 20s, early 30s that have gone out and gotten licensed and um, are energized to use their expertise now in the professional field to volunteer their time. And the third demographic is actually getting firms involved, kind of like you do with um, getting you know, tech firms and in, in industry to support humanitarian causes. Um, there's a lot of firms that are willing to volunteer staff time and, um, and work on projects. So to answer your question, we work with lots and lots of universities and, and professionals. Awesome. So let's switch gears a little bit. So what advice would you have for somebody who wants to start an organization, wants to start a nonprofit uh, based off of, you know, what you've learned over the years? Sure. Um, well, first of all, I would say go for it. You know, the, the world needs um, more and more people to, um, to use their skill set to bless the world. Um, it's a tricky industry and it's challenging. It's the business, just like any other business. So you got to find um, your strategy has to be efficient and effective. And, and like I was saying earlier, you really need to find a niche. The most powerful humanitarian organizations I've ever come across are ones that find a specific niche that they're good at and they stick to that. They don't water it down and they don't take on more than they can chew. Um, the other thing I would, you know, just highly encourage is you got to be humble. You got to um, recognize that you don't have all the solutions that even if you come up with a great idea, it may not work. Um, so you have to become a student. You have to try things um, and you, you have to be willing to learn constantly be willing to learn. Um, you know, and, and then you need to find a revenue stream. Um, you know, it's like I mentioned, it's a business just like any other business. So you either need to find a really, really efficient business model, um, or you need to find a revenue stream, whether that's seeking financial sponsorships, um, or private donors or grants. Um, there's a lot of people that get into this industry. They're really excited about it and it, and it doesn't stick. It doesn't last very long because they get burned out. Um, so I could go on and on about advice and lessons learned. I think the main thing I want to say is, you know, go for it. If you've got a good idea, pursue it, chase it. The world needs you. 
That's such a great point. Uh, and that's actually one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about as well. Um, you had mentioned that you wanted to create a nonprofit uh, that was business savvy. And I know you have a, a business model in place. Uh, can you share a little bit about what that business model is? Sure. Well, for, for Journeyman International, you know, as, as all your folks listening to this understand, the construction industry is expensive. You go hire a designer, an architect, an engineer, a contractor. It's, it's expensive and it's no different in the developing world. So what Journeyman's been able to do is tap into volunteers. Um, and at first it was kind of an experiment to see if you could get a world-class architect to volunteer 300 hours of his time. And the reality is they will. Um, and so we, you know, we strictly work off of volunteer time from professionals, which has allowed us to produce millions and millions of dollars of product for free to our partners and it has allowed us to keep our overhead low. We don't have an office filled with architects and engineers that we have to pay um, because we're able to tap into those volunteers. How large is the staff? We have four on staff and um, we have a, a key group of our journeyman alumni, which I treat almost as staff because um, they've been um, so involved and, and just touched by the experience that they went through that um, they're more than just volunteers. So where does Journey uh, Man International go from here? Uh, is there anything in the pipeline that you're excited about uh, that and that you're uh, willing to talk publicly about? Absolutely. Like I mentioned earlier, the, the potential is massive. I mean, the need is through the roof and the number of, of volunteers is is huge um, for us it's it's important that we maintain quality control as we grow so um, I we want journeyman international to continue to grow to continue having a, a bigger and bigger impact um, but we need to make sure that we can maintain that quality control because it is a pretty tricky business um, so we design about 30 projects a year each design has a architecture, an engineering, and a construction volunteer on the project. Um, and we typically coordinate site visits for each of these teams. Um, so 30 projects a year is kind of our bread and butter. We want to continue to grow it. Two very, very exciting things we're working on is we've recently launched an office in Paris, France, and we've launched an office in Kigali, Rwanda, and we're recruiting um, people in those regions and expanding to universities in those regions. And I would love to start popping up some new offices throughout the world. Um, some of the projects we're getting ready to launch, uh, we've got an agri uh, agriculture vocational center in Zimbabwe. Um, we have a wildlife sanctuary in Zimbabwe. Uh, we're getting ready to start a hospital design in Haiti. Um, and we have a uh, handful of vocational centers, including one for human trafficking victims in Nepal. One thing I'll just add real quick that I think is, is really important. We design a, a wide variety of projects. My favorite by far are what we call vocational centers. Uh, the reality is impoverished people around the world, what they want more than anything is skills training. They, right. they don't want handouts. They want a job. They want... And so we, we try and design as many vocational centers as we can where they're just skills training centers. 
Uh, I love those. That's amazing. How can people support you? You know, just the average Joe and Jane that, you know, that comes across this podcast, for example, and hears about you. How can they support you? Absolutely. So at our website, you have the opportunity to submit a project. So if you or anybody you know um, has a humanitarian design need, you can submit an application directly at the website. Uh, perhaps you or somebody you know is a uh, architect, engineer, or construction professional that is interested in volunteering. There's an application, again, directly at the website, uh, and I'll give the address there in a second. Um, you know, our funding stream is through corporate sponsorships, uh, typically with firms in the industry that believe in what we're doing and want to sponsor a project. Um, so obviously we welcome those firms to come alongside us. One thing that's kind of neat with that is all of our corporate sponsors are more than just donors. We engage them in the project as mentors. So, you know, they cut us a check to allow us to do what we do. Um, but they're also part of the team. Their staff is engaged um, in, in reviewing design documents and sometimes going on site visits, and it's more interactive. You actually get to be a part of your charity rather than just sending money. Mm-hmm. Uh, our website is journeymaninternational.org, and uh, I encourage you to check it out if you're interested, and you can go through our, our portfolio of work and, and see all that we've done. Perfect. Last question for you. Where can people learn more about you as the uh, the founder of JI? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't exactly know how to answer that. Um, I don't even think I have a bio on our website. Uh, I think the best solution or, or answer to that would be, you know, I, I'm happy to speak with any individual that um, is interested in in our work or interested in me. Uh, you can call the phone number on our website anytime, which will direct you to me. And, uh, and I would love to answer anybody's questions or um, if they want to find a way to get involved or, or need advice on um, maybe you're, you want to start a similar organization. Um, the world needs more humanitarian design organizations. And so I would love to uh, encourage any of those folks that I can. Amazing. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me. We packed in a ton uh, in 37 minutes. This is going to be a fantastic episode. So thank you again for, uh, for joining me. Of course, Jeremy. Anytime. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Changemaker Forum podcast. I hope you got a lot of value out of this episode. If you did, it would be amazing if you shared it on your favorite social network, whether that's LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or something else. So with that being said, stay tuned for the next episode. Bye.